Welcome to a new edition of Heartland History, the podcast of the Midwestern History Association. Today is our 40th podcast, and we are joined by a very special guest. We are joined by Liesl Olson. She is the director of Chicago Studies at the Newberry Library in Chicago, and she is the author of a book that was just released two months ago by Yale University Press entitled Chicago Renaissance, Literature and Art in the Midwest Metropolis. Welcome to the show, Liesl. Liesl, let's start uh, with a uh, fairly obvious question. What do you mean by renaissance? Mm, right. It's a word that I think we usually associate with uh, an early, the early modern period, um, not with the 20th century. Um, and I um, really debated whether that was going to be a word that essentially um, I used or reused because it's a word that has been... Um, used to describe kind of two different periods in Chicago's cultural history, an early literary renaissance that took shape in the years, decades following the 1893 World's Fair, with writers like um, Dreiser, Henry Blake Fuller, Harriet Monroe, Carl Sandburg, Edgar Lee Masters, Natural Lindsay, and various others. And then a period um, a few decades later, in the 30s and 40s, really, kind of up through mid-century, a Chicago black renaissance, so a real artistic ferment, you know, across the arts and literature and music and dance and visual, um, you know, culture. And um, that, you know, was really kind of um, catalytic for the for the city and which was really focused in and around the neighborhood of Bronzeville. So um, the word, you know, really, uh, I think in, in our kind of scholarly vocabulary was used to describe two really distinct moments that ultimately I was trying to, or I've tried to um, bring together um, or, um, you know, um, underscore continuities between these two moments by looking at the 30s and moments of interracial artistic collaboration, kind of um, places where there was influence and overlap. Um, So I ended up, you know, really, you know, keeping with the word in order to kind of um, unify two different moments of of Renaissance. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the pre-1893 period. Uh, You mentioned Uh the important uh, pivotal moment of the Chicago World's Fair. But just to set up your discussion of modernism in Chicago, can you talk a little bit about what was happening in Chicago prior to 1893, and I'm uh-huh. thinking, I guess, about the era of um, uh, Hamlin Garland and the uh-huh. Society for Midland Authors and, uh-huh. and those sort of figures and institutions. Right, right. I mean, this actually really connects well with your question about Renaissance, because another um, uh, understanding of that word or way in which we might, it applies to Chicago has to do with its relationship to boosterism or cultural uplift. You know, a, a renaissance is a cultural flowering, um, but also a sense that the arts are good for civic life, right, and um, should be supported in a city that, you know, in a period before the, before the fair was um, experiencing a tremendous amount of, of growth, you know, um, people, industries, um, the development of the city, um, and, you know, artists and writers, people like Hamlin Garland and others, 
um, we're there to kind of say, you know, the city needs art too, um, and it needs institutions that will support the arts. So um, Hamlin Garland and others um, were not only involved in the institutions that you that you uh, mentioned, but also in places like the Little Room, the Cliff Dwellers Club, um, which gathered together uh, writers and artists and architects and visual artists um, to kind of think about um, how Chicago too could lay claim to a kind of cultural centrality. Um, and of course, you can't you can't forget, you know, and I'm sure you haven't the the major event before the. Um, the World's Fair, which was the fire in 1871, um, which was this moment when, um, you know, of utter devastation to the city, um, but also a moment when um, people, you know, post-fire thought about how can we rebuild our city, what can we make it into, and then the fair being the kind of grand proclamation of look how we've recovered, look what look at what we've become 20 years later, 20 plus years later. Um, so, you know, the, the, the years before the fair are, are not years that I spent a whole lot of time discussing in the book, but I think there are the seeds of this kind of um, Chicago boosterism that are really important to really everything that follows, right? And that I think I'm trying to also get at with that word, renaissance. You know, the, the fair is in some ways that first moment of... Um, a flowering or rebirth kind of from the ashes of the of the 71 fire. So would you describe the period prior to 1893 as a period which was defined or maybe dominated by mm-hmm. uh, some of the early settlers of Chicago, maybe New England uh, settlers, uh, people like Newberry himself, who I guess would right. come out of that tradition, the civic booster tradition? Yeah, yeah. Um, Oh, it's defined by so many things. I guess, I mean, the word settlers is pretty pretty loaded, right? Because I don't know what's getting settled exactly. Obviously, you have um, various Native American communities in this area for a very, very long time before, um, you know, these um, Europeans come um, and, you know, quote, settle, settle the place. Um, and, you know, that, that conflict is so definitive, too, in terms of the, the shaping of Chicago. So, um, you know, people like Walter Newberry, um, the, the um, cultural patrons of other institutions in Chicago, libraries, museums, um, and the like, uh, you know, they, they too, I think, are infused with a, a spirit of, of shaping the city um, in the same way that other folks like Hamlin Garland have this idea that, you know, we, we need these things in order to kind of not just be an economic, um, an industrial center for the country, but a cultural center. So Chicago in the years after 1893, um, as your new book uh, demonstrates, uh, became a center of uh, modernist art and uh, modernist literature. Why did Chicago become uh, a center of of the modernist movement? Right, right. Well, there's a line of thinking about modernism with, which suggests that it is really an art of cities, um, that uh, the experience of anonymity in this city, of, um, uh, of the mechanization of everyday life, the experience of living in dense, um, kind of urban centers of contact with um, many, many, many people over the course of the day, 
um, the experience of being a flanner, right, walking around um, and being, um, uh, you know, open to kind of this sensory overload of, 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 of the city, that that experience itself is partly what um, modernism is all about and what um, writers and artists were, were trying to, to represent. And so in some ways, you know, when you think of Chicago, which, um, you know, is the, the fastest growing city, you know, of, of, of any city, um, it's, it's in some ways not surprising that it too produced artists and writers who were interested in um, representing kind of the shock of modernity, right? Um, and for me, it just, I guess, coming to Chicago, moving back to the Midwest in 2005, I was looking for a book that would, would, would help explain how Chicago was also at the center of the modernist movement, because I just kind of assumed that it it would have been, given the kind of city that it was and is. Um, and and I didn't find that kind of book. Um, I found a lot of great books about Chicago, but not one that really focused in on how Chicago um, was also caught up in part of a larger transatlantic modernism, right? Um, and so I'm not sure that the, the kind of answer for why Chicago is any different from why New York, why Paris, why Vienna, right? I mean, these great um, metropoles um, that brought together so many different kinds of people that were so... Um, uh, you know, kind of where, where artists and writers were, were naturally drawn. Um, it, it's, it's this, it, Chicago's really part of that larger network, right? Um, and so, and, and of course, it's literature and art is traveling to these other places. It's part of a kind of network of periodicals and books um, and exchange. Many, many artists and writers in Chicago, you know, went elsewhere and came back. I mean, people were circulating. So part of what I'm also trying to do in the book is not just um, uh, describe a kind of Midwestern regionalism, but the ways in which Chicago and Midwestern artists and writers were connected into this larger um, network of, of kind of artistic explosion in the 20th century. We are visiting today with Liesl Olson. She is the director of Chicago Studies at the Newberry Library in Chicago. Uh, she is the author of a brand new book entitled Chicago Renaissance, Literature and Art in the Midwest Metropolis, published two months ago by Yale University Press. Uh, Liesl holds a BA from Stanford and a PhD from Columbia, and she grew up in Kansas City. Liesl, tell us who were the key leaders of the modernist movement in Chicago. Um, mm-hmm. In particular, uh, we would be interested in hearing about Harriet Monroe. Sure, sure. Right. I mean, Harriet Monroe is such a fascinating figure, um, the editor and founder of Poetry Magazine, which she launched in 1912, which was probably the most important little magazine of modernism and published some of the poets who now I think we consider um, you know, the, uh, very canonical writers of the 20th century. Um, she published Carl Sandburg's Chicago Poems. She published work by writers from abroad. So she was publishing work by William Butler Yeats, by Ezra Pound, by T.S. Eliot. She published many, many American poets, Marianne Moore in particular. Um, Wallace Stevens was a poet who she um, essentially discovered. 
And, um, you know, the magazine never missed an issue, right? So it's, it was published every month, continues to publish every month. And um, she just was a kind of visionary in terms of getting that magazine off the ground and making a space for poetry in Chicago. Um, and in really looking at Monroe, um, I was connected to many of the other women in Chicago who uh, were kind of the cultural arbiters of the city in the early 20th century. Um, you know, the women who built the bookstores and the salons and edited the magazines and were kind of a galvanizing forces for um, the kind of institutional structures that supported artists and writers. Frank Monroe herself was um, was a writer and a poet. Um, she uh, wrote uh, as a freelance critic for Chicago and New York newspapers for many, many years before she launched Poetry Magazine. And in fact, she was one of the few um, people who reviewed and reviewed well the Armory Show of 1913, which of course first took place in New York City and then came to Chicago at the Art Institute of Chicago. And in some ways that's really where her writing sparkles the most is in her reviews of visual art. So I was also really interested in thinking about the connections between literature and the visual art through figures like Monroe and various others. Um, so I'll just mention some of the some of the other women who are really central to Chicago Renaissance to the book. Um, Margaret Anderson, who launched the Little Review, another um, modernist periodical. She was really inspired by Monroe. Um, Margaret Anderson um, uh, teamed up with her partner Jane Heap, and the Little Review became a periodical that published not just poetry and literature, but also published lots of visual art as well. Jane Heap was trained at the School of the Art Institute, and they're most famous for um, publishing chapters from James Joyce's Ulysses. They published almost half the novel, and um, and going on trial for obscenity and losing that trial, um, but uh, all their legal fees were paid by a wealthy benefactor from Chicago. Um, there's another really interesting woman who um, I uh, uh, kind of focus in on in my book, and that's Fanny Butcher, who was the longtime literary editor of the Chicago Tribune, where she worked for almost 50 years. And um, also, she ran a bookstore on South Michigan Avenue um, in the 20s, Fanny Butcher Books. So um, she kind of was an incredible um, human being who was able to both um, run an extremely popular bookstore and then also uh, review for the Tribune. Um, there was a little bit of conflict of interest there, and, and eventually she gave up her bookstore and just focused on her role as liter literary editor of the Tribune. But she was really close to many of the um, key writers of the 20th century, um, from Carl Sandburg and Ernest Hemingway to Willa Cather and Edna Ferber, uh, and all of her uh, papers and correspondence um, uh, that material is housed here at the Newberry, so uh, it was really exciting to kind of, um, in some ways, bring bring her to light. Um, there are some really other uh, fascinating women later on and uh, sort of deeper into the 20th century who were key figures um, of, of Bronzeville. Um, you know, I write at length about Gwendolyn Brooks, of course, who I think is probably the best poet to come out of Chicago. There's also a really interesting woman named Vivian G. Harsh, who um, was the head librarian at the George Cleveland Hall Branch Library, um, which was a kind of intellectual hub of Bronzeville. And she oversaw a uh, book review and lecture forum that met in the evenings at Hall Branch Library, and she brought an African-American 
writers and intellectuals for real, real discussions of, of politics and literature. And then she also asked um, those individuals for, for their work and for their papers and amassed this tremendous repository of, of material by and about African Americans, which is now the Harsh Collection, which was immensely useful to me as I worked on this book. Um, so those are a handful of the, of the um, in some ways, really, really, really key women of Chicago who helped to build this literary and cultural infrastructure here through the first half of the 20th century. And then, of course, in the book, too, I cover some um, uh, more well-known figures um, and, uh, you know, artists and writers from Sherwood Anderson and, and Hemingway to Richard Wright and, as I mentioned before, Gwendolyn Brooks. Um, so, I, you know, I really wanted to kind of balance out the kind of what we know um, in terms of uh, the the writers and artists of Chicago with many, many figures who are, who are lesser known. Well, let's uh, go back to Harriet Monroe and Margaret Anderson. I can't remember mm-hmm. which... Which one of them? But one of them grew up in a little town in uh, Indiana, as I recall. Yeah, that's Margaret Anderson. That's right. Yeah. Well, I remember reading some of her early uh, material, and probably maybe this was her correspondence. But mm-hmm. she believed that uh, it was important for Chicago to establish itself as uh, the capital of the Midwest and kind of mm-hmm. a voice for the mm-hmm. Midwest and the broader culture. Did you mm-hmm. did you run across many of these regionalist enthusiasms in many of your writers? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, Margaret Anderson, certainly Harriet Monroe, if there's a booster of Chicago, it is Monroe, and she particularly wanted to give voice to Chicago and Midwestern artists and writers. Um, she, you know, she championed Sandberg, she championed uh, Vachel Lindsay, she championed um, Edgar Lee Masters uh, and various others. Uh, Margaret Anderson is a little bit more complicated. I mean, she's she's a, a woman who um, you know is dying to leave her small town in Indiana and get to the big city, which she of course does. Um, she starts working for women's magazines when she first moves here, and then uh, she lives in a women's boarding house, and then she works at some bookstores, and then eventually launches the Little Review. She's a um, she's a political radical. She's an ardent feminist. She um, is very close to Emma Goldman. She publishes Goldman's work in the Little Review, and the, and the Little Review itself becomes much more leftist and bent. Um, I think eventually, you know, she shakes off that that idea that um, you know what she needs to be doing with the Little Review is about the Midwest. Um, she publishes many of the same writers that Monroe does. But she has, I think, a much more cosmopolitan sense of what that magazine should be all about. And she is, I mean, she kind of follows a more classic trajectory in terms of small town, uh, Midwest, um, you know, uh, childhood that is followed by a move to Chicago and then eventually a move um, out to New York, a brief stint in California, and then onward to Paris where she lives out, um, you know, the rest of her life. Um, and that's that's a trajectory that you see over and over again, a very familiar one for um, uh, artists and writers from the Midwest whose kind of first stop is Chicago before moving elsewhere. But I think what my book tries to do is balance out that narrative with the stories of many other artists and writers who stay in Chicago, right? And even, even artists and writers who have the opportunity to go elsewhere but decide this is where I want to be. 
right? Um, because that is as true, I think, to um, the larger history of the cultural history of the city as this sense that it's just a stopping ground. Um, I am interested in this, uh, since we're talking about small-town Indiana, mm-hmm. um, Theodore Dreiser um, leaps to mind. I think you mentioned him a little Absolutely. bit, a little yeah. bit earlier. And there was, um, in addition to the boosters of Chicago, there were those who feared or tried to resist Chicago and mm-hmm. its pull. And right. uh, what Didn't stay in the small town? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how much of uh, how much of that dynamic did you detect in your research? Right. Um... I mean, I tend to I tended to focus on the the, um, the writers and artists who really found a footing here in Chicago. But if you take somebody like Sherwin Anderson, he also is somebody who um, you know moves from small town Ohio to Chicago in order to kind of realize his artistic vocation. He starts as a painter, eventually becomes a writer, and I think that push and pull between small town life and the big city is. Um, a, a, a really strong tension you see in his work, right? Uh, a, a critique of small town life with also, I think, a strain of nostalgia for it. Um, Anderson himself is somebody who never felt at ease in the big city, even though he felt that it was um, a really vitalizing force for him. And the first time that he found a community of artists and writers who could support what he was doing, um, I don't know how many of your listeners will be familiar with the kind of um, mythologizing of Anderson or his self-mythologizing, but he describes in his memoirs this moment in which, um, you know, in his early 30s, uh, married um, and with three children, he realizes, and he's living in, in, in Ohio, he realizes, you know, I just, I can't do this anymore. I can't, I can't uphold this kind of sham of middle-class respectability. I've, I've got to abandon everything, move to Chicago, and become an artist, which he does, um, and uh, leaves everything behind and kind of lives in a boarding house, lives with a bunch of other bohemians, and, um, you know, realizes himself as an artist. Um, and yet, you know, wand, and you see this in, in, in his early poetry, which is published in Poetry Magazine, he kind of fashions himself as this, this um, you know, this 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 wanderer in the great city, this kind of rural uh, man, this man of the of the farmland, this man of the wheat, um, who is wandering in this you know industrial dark uh, you know foggy city. So he's back, and he's it's, you know he's a man out of place, and so you see that you see that tension between kind of where he should be, but where he needs to be. Um, both in his memoirs and his poetry, and then, of course, in his exquisite collection of stories, Winesburg, Ohio, which is set in small-town Ohio, but all of the people who populate those short stories are based upon figures he met here in Chicago, the kind of bohemian artists and writers. So he's transporting them to a small town, um, which is really, really fascinating kind of tension. Later on in the book, Liesel, you have a scene uh, which involves Gertrude Stein visiting Chicago and Mm -hmm. getting into something of an argument with uh, Mortimer Adler. Could Mm -hmm. you tell us a little bit about Adler and his connections to Chicago (laughs) and about about what led up to this uh, little dispute? 
was a, a, a moment that um, I landed upon kind of early in my research for the book, and I thought, what was Gertrude Stein doing in Chicago, and um, what does Gertrude Stein have to do with Chicago in, in any way? And then she became um, a really um, fascinating figure um, that helped me think about the ways in which Chicago was connected to um, the European avant-garde, because Stein comes to Chicago in 1934 as part of her American lecture tour. At this point, she's a pretty big literary celebrity because the autobiography of Alice B. Toklas has just been published, and it's a bestseller. You know, it's a, a book that is very memoir-esque about her um, her partnership with Alice B. Toklas and their Parisian salon, and it's full of gossip about artists and writers, and it's fairly um, accessible. Um, it's audience writing, to use Stein's uh, uh, term for it, um, unlike some of her more difficult work. So she comes kind of on the heels of this publication. She's greeted um, by huge crowds in the United States, especially in Chicago. She falls in love with Chicago. Um, she's connected to a lot of the um, the women in Chicago in particular, some of whom I mentioned before. And she's shepherded around town to all these book signings, and she's on the lecture circuit. Um, and yes, so it's um, it's uh, her run-in with Mortimer Adler, the architect of the University of Chicago's Great Books Program, that helped me understand a little bit um, more about um, the academic culture here in Chicago and um, what she was up against. Um, ultimately, they have a big fallout over um, how he's teaching great books because he's essentially uh, less interested in... Um, Gosh, the, 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 the formal or stylistic um, or linguistic elements of all the work that are being taught as part of, part of this larger program and much more interested in the kind of ideas that come out, you know, out of these great works of the Western canon. And, you know, Stein herself, who was such a experimenter and innovator in terms of, um, of style and kind of at the level of, of the word and the sentence is appalled that, you know, he has absolutely sort of no interest in aesthetics. It's all ideas. And they get into a big fight um, one night at a dinner party hosted by um, Robert Hutchins, who was then president of the University of Chicago. Um, and, it, you know, it, it ends with Hutchins basically saying, well, why don't you come in and teach one of our classes one day, uh, which she does. And, um, you know, she uh, teaches a course on Aristophanes and epic poetry, and um, she you know, goes swimmingly well. She loves the students. She loves to talk with them. But she's still, um, she's still troubled by, by the Great Books program and particularly by the maleness of it, the fact that it completely excludes, um, you know, many of the uh, great writers who happen to be women. Uh, it certainly excludes work by Gertrude Stein herself. And, um, you know, it's, 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 it's caught up in um, this question of, you know, what are ideas versus, like, what is literature? Um, and that really, really rattles her. But I think also what's really interesting about that moment is the way that, um, you know, we see kind of Stein both inside and outside academic culture, um, where she's kind of rebuffed by these um, men of the Great Books program, but very much embraced by a very mainstream um, audience, mainstream audiences in Chicago who come out to all of her book events. Um, so it's also just um, a moment that helps us understand different audiences in Chicago for modernism. 
I'd like to ask you about uh, growing up in Kansas City in a moment. Uh But before we uh, do that, I want to touch on Richard Wright because Uh Richard Wright, and I just published an essay about Richard Wright uh, last year in in Chicago. And what Uh struck me about Richard Wright, and there's so many things to say about him and his life and his writings, but Uh what sort of leaped out to me was how shocked he was about Chicago having arrived from Mississippi and how dramatically different it was and how it caused him a lot of uh, anxiety, I guess is the right Uh word, because he had so much freedom in Chicago compared to Mississippi where he was so constrained and all the rules were set in stone. And um, I just would like you to tell us about how you place Uh Richard Wright in your book and how you Uh see his influence on Chicago. Right, right. So, um, yes, I mean, he moves to Chicago in 1927, and you're absolutely right. It was the most traumatic experience of his life, moving out from Mississippi. You know, he's obviously part of this great migration, the movement of millions and millions of African Americans from the rural south to the urban north. Um, He moves up, um, he takes the train with his aunt, and he gets off the Illinois Central, and He's absolutely, you know, appalled by the extremity of Chicago. Chicago's cold, and uh, they have a hard time finding a place to live. Um, he's always moving around. Um, there's a particular um, strip, um, long, thin strip of, of uh, land on the south side um, in which, you know, African Americans are crammed because they're not allowed to live anywhere else, and their rents are jacked up, and, you know, um, there's, uh, uh, you know, a kind of, um, intense um, uh, poverty and life of restriction that is um, in some ways, I don't want to say counteracted, but is also part of this larger racial freedom. I mean, that might be um, uh, not quite accurate. I guess what I'm saying is, you know, it's, it's not Jim Crow South. So what he's finding in the North is he can actually, you know, sit next to a white person on a train or he can, um, you know, uh, um, uh, find um, some economic opportunities that are not available to him in the South. Um, he gets involved in various um, leftist um, intellectual circles, the John Reed Club, um, the South Side, um, uh, the, uh, a writer's community that he's part of that are interracial that, you know, he can't imagine um, ever existing this way in the South. Um, but so it's this real push and pull. I mean, it's a, it's a period for him. He's in Chicago for 10 years of intellectual and political and aesthetic radicalization. But it's also um, a period of, of, of um, poverty and extremity that um, is, uh, is really brutal for him, too. Um, and, you know, later on, after he leaves Chicago, he looks back on it with just a, a sense of like, oh, my God, you know, I can't leave those years and I never want to go back. You know, he eventually um, uh, lives in Paris where there's an even obviously a much greater um, kind of acceptance of him as an African-American than there would have been in Chicago. So, yeah, and he, he takes he takes so much of the contradictions of Chicago, the intensity of Chicago, the ugliness of Chicago, and um, um, kind of uh, transforms that material into, um, you know, tremendous works of, of, of literature, Native Son being, 
you know, the, the obvious work that I think we all know well, um, his 1940 novel, which is a, you know, runaway bestseller. Um, so he's, you know, he's a real, he's a real key figure. Uh, and, um, I'm particularly interested, too, in the kind of push and pull that Wright has with various other artists and writers in Chicago, whether it's Nelson Algren or or um, Margaret Walker, and the way in which he's part of a larger cohort or circle of artists and writers. Um, you know, he's certainly a kind of genius figure, but there are many, many other individuals in Chicago, too, who are... Um, who are producing work kind of alongside Wright. Um, and then later, of course, Gwendolyn Brooks um, and her rapport with Wright is something, too, that uh, is, is really fascinating, um, and which I cover a little bit in the book um, in terms of Brooks's first book of poetry, Street in Bronzeville, which um, Wright reads in manuscript form and praises. Um, and this is after he's moved to New York, and the two of them actually never met in Chicago. Um, so they're probably the two the two most famous figures of Bronzeville, but interestingly enough, they never actually overlapped while living in Chicago. Hmm. Well, the, the scene that I remember most from mm-hmm. uh, Richard Wright is when he gets a job working in a diner in Chicago, mm-hmm. and a white waitress uh, rushes up to him because she's running late and says, Richard, uh, tie my apron. I'm, yeah. I'm running late. I have to get out and move tables. Right. And Richard right. Wright has this second where he thinks to himself, my God, if I did this, if I tied her apron in Mississippi, I'd be be killed. And and here no one even bats an eye at it. So So that's exactly, yeah, that's the thing. He's he's sort of exposed to these new freedoms. But on the other hand, you know, um, Chicago is completely kind of cut off uh, the African-American community and stuffed them all into, you know, this um, this black belt, right? And so it's, 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 it's Right's constant sense of like, how much freedom am I really? Um, you know, what what this this thing, Chicago, that is just riddled with contradictions in terms of the um, right racial dynamics of the city. I mean, someone said to me recently, um, in order to understand Chicago culture, you only need to understand two things: housing and masculinity. <laughs> I thought, okay, um, you know, that gets at I think some of the the quandaries for Richard Wright. I'm not sure it covers everything, but. You know, there still is is some truth to that. Um, speaking of moving around quite a bit, uh, mm-hmm. Liesl, you uh, now live in Chicago, the heart of the Midwest, but mm-hmm. you also lived in uh, New York City getting your Ph.D. at Columbia and went to Stanford for undergrad. But prior to that, you grew up in Kansas City. Tell mm-hmm. us about your childhood in the Midwest and what mm-hmm. Kansas City was like. Right, right. Well, I still go there with some frequency, and I have lots of family in Kansas City, and it's a city that I love, um, and feel very, you know, emotionally close to, particularly the, my, my family there. Um, I think Chicago, in some ways, was always on the map as the kind of big city, the big Midwestern city, and it was certainly the first time as a child that I ever, you know, took a cab or went to the top of a um, you know, tall building, the Sears Tower, kind of experienced the intensity and diversity, density of a really, really big city. Um, so Chicago was always kind of that, um, uh, you know, was, was, was that kind of known city for me. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, like many people, um, opportunities lie elsewhere and lived on the coast for um, uh, a long time before moving back to Chicago or moving back to the Midwest, I should say, in 2005. 
Um, and, you know, there was both the element of the familiar in terms of it being still a very Midwestern city, um, um, you know, from, from my childhood, and yet there, there were many, many links um, between other places that I have lived just in terms of kind of the dynamism and vitality and, um, you know, uh, quality of urban life that you can experience if you live in, in Chicago. So sort of elements of both for me. Um, I don't know. I mean, you, you never know where your life is going to lead you, but I sort of do think that I'll, I'll, um, I'll be in Chicago for a while. Was there a particular place or neighborhood or mm-hmm. subdivision of Kansas City where you grew up? Uh, describe mm-hmm. the geography of that. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how many of your listeners will know Kansas City. Maybe a lot, given this is a focus on the Midwest. But um, I grew up just south of the plaza, so an older neighborhood, um, lots of old houses, and yet um, very close to downtown and to... Um, you know, various different institutions, um, cultural institutions, and um, uh, it's um, it's a city, I mean, uh, other people know much more about what's happening politically and economically, and I think in terms of urban planning in Chicago, but it's a city that, um, you know, is, is, like many other Midwestern cities, it seems like constantly trying to rebuild its it's downtown, right, after a period of essentially white flight in the 70s. I mean, it's no Detroit, right? Um, there's there's always been a downtown in Chicago. It's never been abandoned. But I think more and more, I mean, when I go home, I see that how, how that is happening. Um, and so that was always, you know, um, I, was, I guess what I'm trying to say is I, I was never somebody who lived um, in the suburbs, even though parts of Kansas City, parts that are still very close to downtown, can have that feel just in terms of the, you know, the lawns um, and the space between homes and that kind of thing. Um, but that's a very different neighborhood than the, the you know, the, the kinds of neighborhoods that are closer to downtown Chicago, for instance. Well, the reason I ask and the reason I was curious, and this is another way to connect Chicago and Kansas City, is that uh, in the last few months we interviewed an author who wrote a book, an entire book, just about the year that Ernest Hemingway spent in Kansas City working for the Kansas City Star and how he um, sort of earned his stripes there and became a writer. um, Right. Based right, on his yeah. year in Kansas City. That's right. I mean, I remember knowing that when I was in, you know, grade school and high school that Hemingway had lived in uh, Kansas City for a year. That's the year right before he sets off um, to serve on the Italian front, and it's a really key year for him because instead of going off to um, to college, he moves to Kansas City, right? Um, and he covers Kansas City. Um, uh, and in in all of its kind of seediness, you know, it's um, it's murders, it's jazz clubs, um, you know, the, the Irish Catholic mafia who runs the city. I mean, it's um, he's he's interested in the gritty part of urban life that I think you can find really in any city. Um, and uh, you know, there there are myths about what that experience did for Hemingway's style, and I think for many years. And the writer you had on the show probably spoke, spoke about this a little bit. People believed that Hemingway's prose was shaped essentially by the style sheet that the Kansas City Star gave to all of its young reporters. Right. Um, that has this list of, of things um, a reporter should keep in mind. You know, number one, use short sentences. You know, number two, be concise. 
you know, the, these directives that informed his kind of spare, spare style. Well, I think the more, and more you know, the scholars have looked at that period in Hemingway's life, we, we see that, in fact, Hemingway may have phoned in a lot of his stories. It's unclear how many he actually wrote himself. Um, you know, it's, it was he ever even given that style sheet. It was a really short period in his life, et cetera, et cetera. But he always claimed that that, that period was very formative to him in terms of his, his style. So then he goes off to Italy, and then, of course, he comes back and he um, convalesces after his injuries on the Italian front in Oak Park, and then he moves to Chicago for a year and a half, um, which is an extremely important formative period for him as well because he's exposed to... Um, uh, the, the journalism scene in Chicago and then also the poetry scene in Chicago, the literature scene in Chicago. He meets Carl Sandburg. He meets Sherwood Anderson, a very important early mentor, um, who sends him off to Paris with letters of introduction to Gertrude Stein and Sylvia Beach. Um, so I look at that period of his time in Chicago and in the larger Midwest in my book as well. We have been visiting today with Liesl Olson. She is the director of Chicago Studies at the Newberry Library in Chicago, where she has worked since the year 2009. This has been our 40th episode of Heartland History, and uh, we want to extend a special thanks to Liesl for joining us. If you want to get a copy of Liesl's book, it is entitled Chicago Renaissance. Literature and Art in the Midwest Metropolis, and it is published by Yale University Press. Heartland History is interested in uh, signing up some more interviewers for the show. If you are interested, please contact us via Twitter. I'm John Lauk, your host of Heartland History. Our show is produced by Aaron Babcock. Once again, Liesl, thank you for joining us. tuning in to Heartland History. If you would like more information about the Midwest History Association, visit us at midwesternhistory.com. You'll have access to information about memberships, news about upcoming conferences, calls for papers, and panel proposals related to Midwestern history. You might also be interested in subscribing to the print journal, Middle West Review, or reading our online journal, Studies in Midwestern History. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, and you can find us on Facebook. Until next time.